Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we can gather together today in freedom and learn more about who you are from the scriptures. And we thank you, Lord, that you've given us a firm foundation that we can plant our feet and know the things that you've required. We pray, Lord, that you would help us learn from the mistakes of the church at Sardis, that we would be a people who are content with your word and your doctrines, that we would always walk with you in discipleship and never depart from the great doctrines of the faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you can see, we're going to be looking at... Uh, by the way, I've got a typo on your handout. It's, I had verses 1 through 7 listed. It's actually Sardis is just verses 1 through 6 of Revelation chapter 3. But as we examine Jesus' words to the church at Sardis, I would make the claim that Sardis is probably the church that's closest to representing the church in our Western civilization at large, being that it's largely dead. (laughs) So if you think about this, the church at Sardis is the church that's in the worst shape of all seven because it is a dead church. It's not fighting. It has lost the fight when it comes to apostasy and false doctrine. Now, I want to begin by telling you a story about Sardis historically to kind of bring in one of the sayings that Jesus uses, which you've seen last week in the Gospels. Remember, Jesus says he's going to come like a thief. We talked about that. Let me tell you how this may be particularly relevant to the church at Sardis. First of all, Sardis is unique in the book of Revelation because it's the only church that's listed in the plural. So in other words, when you look at Ephesus or Pergamum, Thyatira, Philadelphia, Smyrna, Laodicea, they're all in the singular, but Sardis is in the plural. And the reason why is because there was two parts to the city. There was a huge acropolis or defensible position, like a fort, high up on a hill, but they outgrew that. And so they started to build the rest of the city of Sardis down below. And so there's really two Sardises. I don't know if you'd say Sardi (laughs) for the plural. I don't know. Sardines, yeah. <laughs> Very good. Um, I don't know how you would say that, but nonetheless, it's in the Greek. You'll see that it's actually in the plural, which is interesting. But here's, I think, what's fascinating as far as its history. Sardis was the capital of the Lydian Empire, and that was a very powerful empire around the time of 560 B.C. under a man who was the king named Croesus, uh, C-R-O-E-S-U-S. Croesus was a very good king initially, But he became very arrogant and very prideful. And because he's a pagan, as pagans do, they become very discontent with what they have. And he ended up attacking the wrong king. He ended up attacking Cyrus the Great in the year 547 B.C. So Croesus, who is the king of Lydia, his headquarters, the capital, is Sardis. He launches an invasion, an attack against the king of Persia, Cyrus the Great, and he loses But Croesus is so arrogant, he thinks, well, it's winter time. I didn't do so hot. I'm going to disband my military. Because why? Well, that's what everybody did in the winter. Because of the rough traveling conditions, you just disbanded your military. So he got rid of his allies, the Egyptians, the Spartans, the Babylonians. He says, I'll just go away for the winter. We'll come back and fight another day. Well, he doesn't even bother to see if Cyrus the Great was going to disband his military. So lo and behold, Cyrus the Great does not disband his military, and he ends up following Croesus right to Sardis. Now, Sardis was known as the most impregnable fortress that existed in the known world at that time. In fact, there was a proverbial statement. You know, you and I have this statement in our 
language will say, well, look, I'm just trying to change the tire on my car. I'm not trying to put a man on the moon. And we use that phrase, putting a man on the moon, is synonymous with doing something that's very difficult. Well, the saying back then was, look, I'm just trying to change my chariot wheel. I'm not trying to attack the fortress at Sardis. Attacking the fortress at Sardis was known as something extremely difficult. Well, because Croesus the king thought that the fortress was impregnable, he became unprepared, he became arrogant, very prideful, and he didn't even do the simple things that you would do if you were going to undergo or try to withstand an invasion. He didn't even post guards. And so in 546 B.C., Cyrus's troops went right over the wall, and all Croesus had to do was simply be prepared by having guards, because they, the old saying was even a child could defend Sardis. It was so easily defended. But Croesus and his arrogance and his pride was completely unprepared, and Cyrus took, took Sardis in um, 546 B.C. So here's the relationship. Jesus says to the church at Sardis, if you're not prepared, I'm going to come like a thief. And so I want you to think about how Jesus comes to an arrogant people in their pride at Sardis who aren't prepared at his second coming. And he'll come like a thief. And he's playing on this image of something that was in their memory, namely the other king, Cyrus, who came like a thief to this wicked king, Croesus, who was unprepared because of his arrogance and pride. And so there's this play on words. Now, one of the questions, though, is why was Sardis so unprepared? The reason why is because they had completely succumbed to paganism. And I want to show you that the leading goddess of the time in Sardis was this Cabelli. She was the Mother Earth. What they worshipped was nature religion. Just as Bob had talked about with Gaia worship today, where of course you don't want to pollute or ever run an SUV because you're wrecking Mother Earth, these people thought much in the same way. And that's why I think it's so apropos for the American church today. Um, Robin, I see that you, uh, did you have something to add to that? Oh, okay. Okay, okay, gotcha. I thought you looked like you were about to say something. So, Well, Cabelli, she was the local goddess. She gave life after death. She guarded the grave and the afterlife. Now, who really has the authority of life over death? Well, it's Christ. But here at Sardis, they believed in this Mother Earth worship of Cabelli. She's also called Artemis. And so what they believed was that the whole earth was living And so you had death, of course, in the fall and the winter, but then you had a return to life in the spring and the summer. And so they really did have a goddess that was consistent with the world itself. That's pantheism. All right, well, of course, who really gives life after death? It's Jesus. So you can see the confrontation. But here's the other piece of the puzzle that we have to be aware of. The Jews had a very large community here, And it found a sanctuary by accommodating themselves to these pagan practices. So remember in 586 B.C., you had the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Remember, after that, you have this huge diaspora of Jews. They spread out all over the world. One of the main cities that they came to was Sardis. That was one of their largest communities. Well, let's fast forward to the time of the Apostle John. Around 95 A.D., you have this emperor of Rome who runs the known world at that time, Domitian. Domitian demands you do two things if you want to keep your head and your life and your money and not be arrested, etc. He demands that you either worship him or one of the local deities in his empire. 
And so what happened with the Jewish community is they were allowed to keep their synagogue and people would have protection by being in the registry of the synagogue if they would adhere to the pagan practices. And so what we have in Judaism then is a syncretism where you have Judaism and pagan practices and they're put together. And what the Jews reasoned was, well, at least we can keep our community and not be killed by Domitian. So what happens is if you're part of the registry in the synagogue, you have protection from the emperor. So what do the Christians do in Sardis? The church at Sardis is dead because they take upon themselves the pagan practices. They're not battling. What they do is they say, well, look, we want to become, a, become part of the registry in the synagogue. Well, let's just assume for ourselves these practices of the pagan world. And so they start worshiping Cabelli and the Mother Earth, just like you see so many Christians doing today. And so that was the problem at the church, with the church at Sardis. They weren't battling heresy. They believed in it. And they were completely dead in that way. And so I want to point out then Christ's assessment of them in verses 1 through 2 of Revelation 3. He says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write. Now let me just stop there. Remember the angel, Angelos, is a human messenger. Angelos can be used for an angel, which is a messenger, an angelic messenger, or a human messenger. But we had defined earlier, more than likely, this is actually referring to a human messenger because they were giving the message to the church itself from the Apostle John. Okay, so to the Angelos, the messenger of the church in Sardis, right? He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Now, I first of all want to talk about what I've highlighted read. Notice this description of Jesus. He is the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We learned earlier that the seven stars were the seven messengers for the church. So certainly he's referring to the fact that he is God who is in control of the seven churches. But what about Jesus having seven spirits? What in the world is that referring to? Well, just jot this down. You can read it tonight. We won't turn to it for the sake of time. But we've talked about this perhaps months ago. Remember Zechariah chapter 4? You have verses 1 through 10 where there's a vision of a lampstand. And on that lampstand, there's seven lamps which represent the seven spirits of God. And the idea is that these spirits, which is really the spirit of God, is going to do for Israel what they couldn't do for themselves. Remember the key memory verse that probably some of you have memorized is Zechariah 4, 6, where God says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So the idea there was that the spirit of the Lord in Zechariah's day was going to do for the people what they could never do for themselves, namely, build the temple under Zerubbabel. God was going to accomplish that even though it was certainly not feasible uh, through human effort. That's the idea. So what we know then is this is an allusion to that. So Jesus then is the one who uniquely has the Spirit of God. Now why would he be uniquely the one who has the Spirit of God? Well, because he's the Messiah. Messiah means anointed. Anointed with what? Water? Anointed with oil? No, anointed with the Spirit. Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 61. 
That's during his earthly ministry. Now when he ascends into the heavens, Jesus, as the Son of God, is also the unique one who can send forth the Spirit. In fact, turn your Bibles to John chapter 15, verse 26. John 15, 26, Jesus, you'll see here, is going to send forth the Spirit who proceeds from the Father. So both the Father and the Son are engaged in sending forth the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit. John 15, 26. Jesus says, when the Helper comes, now let's just stop there. The Helper is parakletos. Um, In the culture of the day, a parakletos was like a defense counselor who would be on a retainer by a wealthy family. So if you had trouble, you would turn it over to your defense counselor, the parakletos. Okay, well, in a sense, that's what the Holy Spirit is going to do for us. Because Jesus goes away, he deposits us in the safety of our defense counselor. And what is he going to do? He says, well, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. That's exactly what Bob was teaching us for, I think, four weeks. We talked about how the Spirit brings people to confessing Christ. So how do you know something's a work of the Spirit? Are people confessing who Christ is and what he's done from the Scriptures? That's a work of the Spirit. If they're not, that's not a work of the Spirit. So the point being here is, by the way, um, I didn't hand out verses. Um, Heidi, would you mind reading Romans 8, 9? And by the way, I've got another one later on. I'll hand this one out for the sake of time. Um, Mike, would you mind reading 2 Peter 3, verses 1 through 2? And we'll, we'll come to that later on. Uh, yeah, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Yeah, Romans 8, 9. So everybody, listen to Romans 8, 9 here. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Do you see how the Holy Spirit was referred to as the Spirit of Christ? The Holy Spirit in Romans 8, 9 is referred to as the Spirit of Christ. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the one that proceeds from him. He sends him out. And so that's exactly what's being stated here in Revelation 3, 1. Jesus is the one who sends the Spirit to the churches. And so he is the one who can remedy the poor condition that Sardis is in if they will listen to him, if they will heed his words. And so he says to them, he says, I know your deeds. Now we're going to define deeds right now. Let's just stop here. Deeds always have to do with two elements. Your doctrine that you believe and the actions that you do. It's both and. Think about uh, Jesus says in John 6, 29. He says, this is the work of God, ergon, the same term that's used here. This is the work of God that you would do, that you would believe in the one whom he has sent. Talking about the one that the Father has sent. So the first work that we do, which isn't a work, obviously, it's a play on words, is that we believe. And of course, that's a work of God that you and I would be able to believe the gospel. But if you really believe, what do you end up doing? You act on that. Abraham believes the promises of God, Genesis 15, 6. He's credited as being righteous. Skip forward seven chapters, Genesis 22. Abraham acts upon it. He's willing to sacrifice his son, his only son. Why was he willing to do that? Because he really believed the promises of God. Okay, so belief always goes to action. You act on what you believe. There was an old joke where the guy over Niagara Falls, remember he has the wheelbarrow? 
and he would go, I've used this time, but I love it. He, he goes over on this tightrope with a wheelbarrow, and everybody's clapping, saying, yes, we believe you can do it. And he asks, well, how many here believe that I can do this? And they all clap, we believe you can do it. So he goes across the tightrope with the wheelbarrow, and they're all just going wild. Well, then he says, well, who wants to get in? And nobody wants to. You see, the idea of true faith is you get in the wheelbarrow. You act on it. And so that's the idea that's conveyed by the deeds. The actions of those at Sardis revealed that they had no faith in Jesus. They had completely accommodated themselves to pagan doctrine. And that's why he says, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you're really dead. Now, what's interesting is there's a little bit of a debate as to what does it mean that they have a name that's alive, but they're dead? In Hebrew culture, a name represents someone's true character. And so a name like Yeshua, Jesus, means Yahweh saves. That reveals something about Jesus' character. He's the only Savior. That's the way it is in Hebrew culture. But in the Greek culture, a name is often used synonymously with something that's merely superficial. So the debate is what's going on here. Is it a play on words that, look, in the Greek culture, you have a name, you have this outward appearance that you're something, that you belong to Christ, but in reality, you're dead. Either way, I think you have to conclude that they may have had the name Christian or of the way, but in reality, they were completely spiritually dead. Completely. Why? Because they were thinking like pagans. They didn't have the gospel at all anymore, at least the majority. So here's what Jesus begins to command them to do. He says, wake up. Now, the term wake up here comes from two, it's actually a verb and a participle in the Greek. Wake up is gnu gregaron. Let me point to these. I'll talk about these. Gnu is a form of ginemai. It's a verb that means to become. Yeah, to become. It has to do sometimes with existence. You become. So this is a command. And then the other one, the other, this is the participle here from gregareo. You've heard that a lot before because Jesus says, be on the alert. You don't know the hour that the Messiah is coming, right? Well, gregareo has to do with being watchful. Now, why would you be watchful? Well, because you want to know not when Jesus is coming, but you believe that he's coming. You want to be prepared. So if you're not watchful for the coming of Christ, why wouldn't you be watchful? Because you don't believe that he's coming. Well, why wouldn't you believe that he's coming? Because you don't believe the gospel, Okay. So if you don't believe the gospel, then you're not watchful. That's the idea. So to be watchful is synonymous with being found in the faith. To be found believing the gospel. All right, now I want to turn to some cross-references here to show you this. Uh, turn your Bibles to Mark thirteen thirty-five. This is a passage that we had looked at last week. I remember this is in connection with the 70th week coming with no warning. We don't know when the 70th week of Daniel will break forth, right? That's what we had determined. Well, in Mark 13, 35, Jesus gives this analogy. Actually, it begins a little earlier, but he says, Therefore, Mark 13, 35, he says, Be on the alert. That's gregareo. Now, the four explains why we should be on the alert. He says, For you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning. So this idea is, it's not that you and I can know when Jesus is coming, but if you're found in the faith, believing in Jesus Christ, whenever he comes, it's good news for you. And so we have to understand when he says, wake up, become watchful, it's a command to those who are dead at Sardis to be found in the faith. 
to be found believing the gospel and acting accordingly. Because if you don't act accordingly, it's evidence you don't really believe. You're saved by faith alone. All right? Let me have you turn your attention to another passage. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 5 through 6. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 through 6. You'll see Greg Areo used here as well. Paul says this to those at Thessalonica, the believers, but by extension to all believers. He says, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. That would be the unbeliever. He says then in verse 6, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. So those who are in darkness, and Bob is going to be teaching us today out of Colossians 1.13, where we've been taken from the domain of darkness, Satan's domain, into the kingdom of the beloved son. Those who are in darkness, who are sleeping, are those who don't believe the gospel. They're perishing. But those who are awake are watchful because they're found in the gospel. Now, let me keep you from another air here real quickly. You'll see in evangelical circles, many people will say, you know, the difference between believers and unbelievers is that we as believers are awake and therefore we know at least have an inkling of the season when Jesus is coming. That's not what 1 Thessalonians 5 is teaching. Again, the difference between believers and unbelievers is not that you and I as believers know when Jesus is coming, but we believe that he's coming. And so, be, why? Because that's part of the gospel and we believe the gospel. And so you see, if you believe that he's coming because you believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter when he's coming, you're prepared because you have atonement in the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's what it means to be watchful. That's what he's rebuking the people at Sardis for. Why? Because they weren't in the faith. They were a completely dead church, at least the majority of them. Okay. Now, I also want to just show it at the bottom. He says, I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Deeds are what? What you believe and how you act. And the reason they weren't complete is because they weren't in the faith at all. They, therefore, they were not compatible to even be in the presence of God, as we'll show later with some of the imagery here. So Jesus gives them a call to repentance. He commands them to do three things here in Revelation 3 and 3a. He says, so remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. So here's what I want you to see in this verse. There's three commands. It's an imperative to remember, to keep it, and to repent. This is what's highlighted read, received and heard. That's something that happened in the past. Okay, so let's begin with remember. Remember is very significant in the Bible. That's what Bob has been teaching us all about in the means of grace. The people of God are notoriously forgetful, not just that we forget facts. Well, I forgot the Pythagorean theorem or A squared plus, you know, I, I, it's not about those types of things. The, remember the slope formula? Y equals MX plus B, that just came to my mind. It's not about forgetting facts like those. Okay, but forgetting means that we no longer really believe the promises of God. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 17, the Lord says to Israel, he says, you have forgotten the God of your salvation. So what does it mean to forget the God of your salvation? They had completely started to trust in Assyria for protection rather than their God. So now Assyria, for all intents and purposes, is their God, not Yahweh. And here the Lord says, 
am I not the one who took you out of Egypt and crushed the Egyptian army, the greatest army in its day? Of course he was. But they didn't believe those promises anymore. And so they had forgotten the God of their salvation. So when we do the Lord's Supper, what does the Lord say? He says, as often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we do this in remembrance of him. We remember what Jesus did for us in the past, and we also remember what he's going to do for us. Okay, so remembering the promises of God is how you and I are sanctified. Why? Because if you believe in the promises of God, that the best is really to come, that he really will one day break forth through the clouds, give you a resurrected body, you're going to be living with him in this eternal kingdom forever, you're going to say, you know what, I'm not living for this fleeting sin here and now. But if you start to doubt those promises, you will live for everything you can get here and now because this is all there is. And so you see the pagans and the unbelievers, they live for this world because this is all there is. There's no promises to live for. Okay, Bob. Thank you. Yeah, to help us with this, it's important to keep in mind that... The failure to remember doesn't mean something's erased from your mind. That's right. Like you couldn't possibly recall. Right. Because if you look at the uh, actually quite many passages in the Old Testament about Israel forgetting God or the forgetting the Exodus. Yeah. Or forgetting that God brought them through the sea. Uh, they knew that's what happened. Right. Okay. But they didn't call it to mind. Now, Abraham serves as the opposite example. Exactly. Because God made promises to Abraham, but when he was called to sacrifice Isaac, he remembered he didn't forget. Amen. If he did forget, what would that look like? It wouldn't mean he couldn't, oh boy. There's some Yahweh who (laughs) one time said this or that. No. No, it would be nuts to this. I went to all this trouble to get this Isaac. We're just going to go our own way and forget God and what he's called us to do. So remember implies taking action that would be showing that we really do believe and call to mind the promises of God. Amen. And so what the means of grace do is put those promises in front of us continually. Keep putting your mind on the promises of God. And when the day of trial comes, like it did for Abraham, you will remember. Amen. That's right. And and I, I love what you said, Bob, and how the means of grace constantly put these promises in front of us. Think about the world that you live in. You live in a world that's attacking the promises all the time. The, the enemy often wins. Evil people often prosper. Uh, the IRS exists. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it looks, I shouldn't probably say that, but it, it looks bad, doesn't it? And you say, well, boy. And if you never, let's say you had once a year a scripture verse, and that was all you had. It's not upon your mind. You start to really doubt, are those things really true? But when they're on your mind and they're taught, and they're re- you're doing the Lord's Supper together, you're in community, you start remembering these things are really true. 
I didn't believe in a fable. And that's what the means of grace are all about. Now, it's interesting here to remember the term that's used is menonuo. It literally means to know again. In this particular context, the remembering has to do with remembering the doctrine that Christ had given them. Because notice what it says. It says, remember what you have received and heard. Now, the term received that's highlighted red comes from lambano. And it often has to do, and I'm not saying exclusively, but it's often used in connection with receiving the doctrines of Christ. Let me give you some examples. Turn your Bibles because I want you to see where these are in Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Oh, by the way, I'm sorry. Before we turn to that, though, I want, um, I've got the passage for you to read, Mike. So everyone turn your Bibles to... Before we do this, 2 Peter chapter 3, because I want you to see the significance of remembering. 2 Peter 3, verses 1 through 2. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. I love it. So notice there in 2 Peter 3, 2, He says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. What Peter was reminding them is what the word of God said. Remember, in Peter's day, you had false teachers say, Jesus isn't coming back. You can live any way you want. There's no return of Christ. There's no judgment. He says, no, I'm reminding you that there is. I'm reminding you that Christ is coming back. So he was calling them to remember the doctrines that came from Christ. That's what we're seeing here. What they had received initially were the doctrines of Christ. They're jettisoning that now for pagan practices. Okay? So now, turn to your Bibles, I'm sorry, to 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. I want to show you in 1 Corinthians how this term lambano, or derivations of it, are used. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. this is what we cite when we do the institution of the Lord's Supper. Paul says, For I received, there's lambano, from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, etc. So the point being is Paul had received this doctrine from the Lord Jesus, and then he passed it on to the church. Uh, another one, turning our head to 1 Corinthians 15.3. You'll see how prevalent this idea really is. 1 Corinthians 15.3. Of course, this has to do with Paul. He's going to prove the necessity of the resurrection. They were doubting that. 1 Corinthians 15.3 He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. There's parat lambano, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So notice in both of those passages, Paul had received the doctrines of Christ, and then he as an apostle passed them on. So the exhortation here in Revelation 3.3 is to remember the doctrines of Christ. In fact, that's synonymous with hearing and receiving. So they had jettisoned the doctrines of Christ. Why? Well, Think of all the excuses today. Well, it's not relevant. Who can believe that? Just the words of man, a bunch of angry uh, men making this stuff up. You hear all the reasons. Well, they had cabelli. They had nature religion. And in so doing, they also had protection in the synagogue on the registry from Domitian going after their head. And yet they had forsaken the king of kings, the head emperor, Jesus Christ, So that's what he's upset about. That's why he's calling them to remember the doctrines that they initially had. In fact, he says they're also to keep it. Now, keep it is the term terao. I'll be talking about that when we get to Revelation 3.10. In fact, I'll show you that in just a minute. 
Keep it, tereo can also mean guard it. It's the idea of taking something precious and holding on to it, not letting it go. In fact, when we get to the church at Philadelphia, Jesus says this. Now remember, in the church at Philadelphia, that's the next one we're going to be looking at. Jesus has only accommodation for them. In other words, commendation. Only wonderful things to say about Philadelphia. But he has nothing but bad things to say about Sardis. Why? What's the difference between the two? Well, Sardis did not keep the doctrines of Christ. But notice what Jesus says of Philadelphia, who he has only good things to say. Revelation 3.10, he says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. They did keep and treasure and protect the doctrines of Christ. So just as Bob had mentioned a few weeks ago, doctrine matters, doesn't it? It's synonymous with being found in the faith. All right? Sardis, they didn't keep it. They worked to start keeping it. In uh, the church at Philadelphia, they had kept it. And so Jesus would keep them then from the hour of trial. Now, what about the last one? The last command is to repent. Remember, repentance has this idea of turning, having a change of mind. So whether it's initially unto salvation because you're a non-believer, you have a change of mind to turn to God on his terms, or perhaps you're a believer who is living in sin, it's a call to turn again away from the evil ones, the way, away from darkness and turning back to the doctrines of Christ. So either way, the call to repentance is a call to turn. Have a change of mind. And a change of mind would be the idea of keeping the doctrines of Christ and rejecting the pagan doctrines. All right, now let's move on then to this warning that we see. He says in Revelation 3, 3b, Therefore, if you do not wake up, there's gregareo. They're not found in the gospel, right? They're not watchful. He says, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Now, this promise to come like a thief is not just for the church in Sardis. It is for all Christians for all time. But of particular importance to the church of Sardis is the fact that they're dead. They're not in the gospel. And if they're not in the gospel, whenever Jesus comes, no one knows, they're not going to be prepared. Now, what's interesting is notice he says, I will come like a thief. This is used throughout the New Testament when Jesus is referring to his coming. He uses the term thief. There's two different Greek terms for thief, latex and kleptase. Lastase, I'm sorry, is it, yeah, lastase, or it's actually with a, it's lastase, the first one is a term that has to do with a thief that uses violence. He is a good thief because he uses his club or his knife or his gun. That would be in our day and age. But that was the type of criminal that was a lace taste. That's not what's being used here. The term that's used here is kleptase. Now, the reason that's significant is because kleptase has to do with a thief that relies upon stealth, lies upon surprise. Now, the reason I mention that is some claim that Jesus comes like a thief only for the unbeliever. And the thief imagery is that of violence. So in other words, his return is violent to unbelievers. But it's not a surprise. It's a, a violent metaphor. Well, you would expect lastase to be used. The issue of a thief coming is one of surprise. And that's why kleptase is used. That's the issue. We have no idea when he's coming. And if you're not in the faith... You're going to have nothing but judgment and wrath. But if you're in the faith, 
you're going to be protected. Okay, that's the significance of being found in the faith. Right now, let me just show you how else this imagery of thief is used. We talked about this last week. Matthew 24, 43. Jesus' parousia is like a thief. The parousia, I'll show you on the board here in a minute, is a complex of events. But that is the technical term for the second advent of Christ. If you want to take one term that's used for the second advent of Christ, his second coming, it's parousia. It means to, to come with presence. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, we see that the day of the Lord comes like a thief. But we also learned last week, Mark 13, 32, you also see this in Matthew 24, 36, that the 70th week of Daniel comes like a thief. Now, what I'm going to do is put a timeline together again here and just show you why this is significant that we understand this in our eschatology. Whenever I show you a timeline, by the way, like this, I'm typically referring to the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years, known as the tribulation period. That would be the the beginning of it. Here would be the three-and-a-half-year mark. And then this would be the great tribulation, the last three-and-a-half years, right? So from here to here is seven years. So you and I are living somewhere in this period of time during the church age, and we have no idea when this time period is going to break forth. So the parousia comes like a thief, Let's look at the parousia. The parousia is the second advent of Christ, and it is a complex of events. It begins with the descent of Christ for his church. Then he pours out his wrath during these seven years. His church is spared, just like Noah and Lot. And then he comes with the church to establish his kingdom in Israel. Okay? But we have to realize that the parousia is also synonymous with the 70th week of Daniel. But it is also the beginning of the day of the Lord. And so the day of the Lord is a time period that begins at the same period of the 70th week of Daniel and the parousia, but notice it extends much further. Okay, so here's the concept I want you to think about with the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord has two concepts associated with it. Salvation and protection of God's people and judgment upon the enemies of God. Now, reason through the timeline with me. I want you to think about the significance of this. God is going to pour out his wrath in the 70th week. So what happens? The people of God are taken out. Well, then we're brought down and we enjoy the millennial kingdom. But we enjoy the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. What happens according to Revelation chapter 20 after a thousand years? Well, the nations can't tolerate the reign of the Messiah, which proves to you that the problem with humanity isn't a problem with our surroundings. It's not environmental because they're going to be surrounded by the kingdom of God. The problem with humanity is here. It's us. We're sinners. And so you'll have unregenerate nations who will rebel against the rule of Christ. And how does he destroy them? He calls fire down. But notice, we're with him this entire time. And are we completely secure? Oh, yes. Nothing ever happens to us. Why? Because God is with his people. Emmanuel, God is really with us. And so we're protected forevermore. So no matter what happens, as soon as you and I are put in our resurrected bodies, there's nothing that can ever happen to us again. But notice, it gets worse and worse for the enemies of God. Here they're being judged basically through earthly means. Then you have cosmic means. And then it gets worse where they're ended up being thrown into the lake of fire, right? At the white throne judgment. All right, so all of that's considered the day of the Lord, and we know that because Second Peter chapter 3, Peter says that the destruction of the heavens and the earth 
is synonymous with the day of the Lord. So here's what I want you to see. The day of the Lord certainly goes beyond the parousia, but the first seven years, it is synonymous with it. It is synonymous with the 70th week of Daniel. So the reason I point that out is all three, the parousia, the day of the Lord, and the 70th week of Daniel happen at the same time. If one preceded the other, one would cease to be like a thief. What if the parousia became before the day of the Lord? Well, then would not the day of the Lord cease to be a thief? Because you would, have, you would be tipped off. You see? So that's why all three have to happen coterminously. Otherwise, one of them would cease to be a thief. One would tip you off. Yeah, Christy. Exactly. Exactly right. Just like it happened in the days of Noah, his family's removed, judgment came. The days of Lot, Lot is removed from Sodom, the brimstone came. That's exactly the model. Yep. So that's what I want you to see is that, again, if one of those things preceded the other, one would cease to be a thief. That's why I think they have to happen coterminously. Okay, so Jesus, again, is warning about this day. He's going to come like a thief, and if they're not prepared, if they're not found in the gospel... It's going to be judgment, not salvation for them. Now we see next that a few were true believers. And so there was a small, tiny remnant that did believe. And so he, he says, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He says here that there have some that have not soiled their garments. To soil your garment means literally to become unclean. So if you're unclean, you can't be in the presence of the Holy One of Israel. You're incompatible to be in his presence. Why? Well, because you're, you're, you have soiled garments. You're a sinner. Okay? So think about uh, the image of a wedding, and you have this high dignitary who's having a wedding for his son, and you show, show up for the wedding, and you've just been working on your 57 Chevy, and you've got oil all over. You're in soiled garments. You're not compatible to be in the wedding party. Do you see what I'm saying? So that's the image. You're not compatible to be in the presence of a holy God. Soiled garments is synonymous with being sinful. And what does God say in Psalm 5, 4 through 5? No evil one shall sojourn or literally live with him. That's the problem with sinners. Sinners cannot be in the presence of a holy God. All right? So this is a passage many of you I know have heard. Isaiah 64, 6. Turn your Bibles there real quick. I want you to see how this idea of soiled garments is used through the scriptures as synonymous with unbelief and therefore people being in their sins. Isaiah 64, 6. Isaiah says this in particular of Israel, but it really extends to all people. He says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean. Okay, now the term unclean there is a term that the lepers used to have to use to cry out. Now, what was the problem with the leper? Well, they couldn't be at temple, could they? They couldn't be in the presence of God. So one who is a sinner can't be in the presence of God. Notice what he says. He says, and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. All of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So notice even the righteous deeds, the things that we considered to do that were good, are considered in God's eyes as literally a menstrual garment our garment that makes us unfit to be in the presence of the Holy One of Israel. And so to have a soiled garment then means that you're still in your sins. And so you see, then that's why Jesus can be the only way of salvation because it's only through Jesus that your garment is removed 
and you are clothed in his righteousness. Every other system has a righteousness that's not perfect, and it has no atonement. That's why Jesus is the only way to salvation. So uh, notice Zechariah. Turn your Bibles to Zechariah 3, 3 through 4. Very interesting, in Zechariah 3, you have Joshua, who is the high priest of Israel. Joshua's name is the same as Jesus. It's Yeshua, Yahweh saves. The irony is this high priest is merely a man, but he has to stand in the gap for the people and represent them, and yet he has stained garments. He's not compatible himself to be in the presence of God. So what we're going to see here is the angel of Yahweh, which is the pre-incarnate Christ. The irony is the next Yeshua, God himself, is going to make this high priest compatible. And listen to how he does it. Zechariah 3, 3 through 4, it says, Now Joshua, that's the high priest of Israel, was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. So this is before the angel of God, the angel of Yahweh. This is before the Messiah, the pre-incarnate form of Christ. It says, He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. So what does the second person of the Trinity do here? He takes the filthy garments off of this high priest. He removes them and then he clothes him with festal robes. So now he's compatible The idea is to be in the presence of the king. That's what faith in Jesus Christ does. So notice here, these are a few who held to the doctrines of Christ. And so therefore, they didn't have soiled garments. They had their festal robes on because they belonged to Jesus. And so notice he says, they will walk with me in white. What do true disciples of Christ do? They act on what they believe. They will walk with Christ wherever he goes. They will, if they're in Sardis, they don't do what the people of Sardis do. They walk with Christ. But those who don't want anything to do with Jesus, those who don't walk with him and say, I'm going to live for the culture, it is synonymous with unbelief. In fact, we see this earlier in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, Jesus teaches difficult things. He says, I'm the manna that came down from heaven, and unless you eat me and drink me, you have no part with me. And the disciples say, well, who can understand this? And I'm talking about the wider group than just the twelve. They say, who in the world can understand this kind of teaching? He's the manna. We're supposed to eat of him. And it says that they were so offended, and as a result, in John 6, 66, it says, as a result of this, that is the difficult teaching, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So to walk with Jesus means you're living your life out in in faith, aren't you? You remain with him. In fact, what's interesting is later on, in Revelation 14, 4, it says these are the ones, this is about the 144,000. Does everybody remember that? These are Jews who are taken out of the world during the 70th week of Daniel. So the signs within the 70th week of Daniel would be extremely significant for them because it would enable them to persevere until the coming of the kingdom. Jesus says this of them, or John does, Revelation 14, 4, these are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. By the way, he's not talking about people who don't have any relations with their wives. He's talking about refraining from sexual immorality, and we'll explain that later. The reason why is 1 Timothy 4, those who say that you can't have relations with your wife, They forbid marriage. Well, that's a doctrine of demons. 
Okay? So we know he's not referring to that. He's referring to the fact that these are men who are pure to their wives or are celibate um, if they're not married. So he says, these are the ones who what? Follow the lamb wherever he goes. In other words, they're true disciples. These have been purchased from among men as the first roots of God into the lamb. So the idea then is you and I, if we really believe the gospel, we follow the lamb wherever he goes. So we don't go for what the culture is putting out. We don't go for yoga, meditation, Lectio Divina. We remain with the doctrines of Christ. At Sardis, they went for the mother goddess, Cabelli, and they said, hey, if we do that, we're not going to be in trouble with Domitian. In fact, we're going to be in the registry of the synagogue. The registry of the synagogue was essential for their salvation from the king Domitian. But Jesus was saying, what about salvation before me? He's the ultimate king. Jesus says, do not fear he who can destroy the body, but he who can destroy both body and soul in hell. It was a form of unbelief that they accommodated to the culture and didn't accommodate themselves to God who they should really fear. But the good news is that these true believers are going to be eternally secure. Look at this wonderful promise. Revelation 3, 5. Jesus says, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. Now let's stop there again. I'll do this every time. How are you an overcomer? 1 John 5, 4 through 5. He who believes in the name of the Son of God, right? He's the one who has overcome the world. So how are you an overcomer? By belief in Jesus Christ, period. And notice what he claims. If you've If you're an overcomer, that is, you're a believer in Jesus, what do you have? You have white garments. You don't have the soiled garments on. Isn't that a wonderful promise? And notice he says, I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, I want to focus on this last phrase for the next five minutes. He gives this great promise, I will not erase his name, from the book of life. This is only for believers. Now, one of the questions that typically will come up is to say, well, wait, is God in the business of blotting people's name out? And there is an indication that he is, but it's only for unbelievers. Okay, for instance, there's three passages that talk about the book of life in the Old Testament. Exodus 32, remember there, um, in fact, let me just read Exodus 32, verses 32 through 33. This is what Moses does as he intercedes. Remember, the Israelites had fallen for the golden calf. He says, but now if you will forgive their sin, and he says he's going to abide with that, but he says, but if not, wipe me out from your book that you have written. And it says, the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, that person I will wipe out of my book. Okay, so we see this idea of the book of life there. Uh, Daniel 12.1 Daniel 12.1 says, Now at the time Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Well, that's the 70th week of Daniel. It says, And at that time, your people, everyone who was found written in the book, will be rescued. Okay? So, and there's another reference in Psalm 69. So there's this idea of this book of life. And the true saint is placed in the book of life. And the promise here is that they will never be blotted out. Now, what this is really a play on, I think it's all the way through Scripture, because in the ancient Near East in Moses' day, all the way even in the Mediterranean world 
in the Apostle John's day, there was a system that was very prevalent, and that was if you lived in a city or a township, there was a registry. And the registry had the names of every single person in it, but when you died, your name was blotted out. And the reason your name was blotted out in the culture of the day was because they had to keep it updated, right? They didn't want to have an old registry. They only had so much room in it anyway. So if you died, you were blotted out of the registry. Well, the great promise that we're seeing here is that the registry for the Christian is never get, their name's never going to be blotted out, is it? Death doesn't separate us from the love of Christ. We're eternally secure. Listen to what Paul says. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Can't find my cursor. There it is. Romans chapter 8, verse 33. I'm going to read all the way to 39. This is what's true of every single believer who has overcome the world by faith in Jesus. Remember, by the way, Romans 8, 30. For those whom he predestined, he called. For those whom he called, he justified. For those whom he justified, he also then glorified. All true. If you've been justified, you've been glorified. Down in verse 33, he talks about his predestined elect. He says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? The obvious answer is no one can. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He's our great high priest. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? The obvious answer is no, none of those things can. Verse 37, but in, I'm skipping down to verse 37 here. He says, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Verse 38, he says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, if you've trusted upon Jesus Christ, your name is forever in the book of life, never to be separated again, never to be blotted out. That's a promise that you can take to the bank. Let me leave you with this. Think about the culture in Sardis. Why would this be significant about not being blotted out of the book? Because you had Christians who, in order to have protection from Domitian, the emperor, had to be belonging to the registry of the synagogue. And the synagogue people were saying, you either take on Judaism and our syncretistic pagan practices, or we're blotting you out from the registry. And the majority of the believers, or I should say unbelievers in Sardis, that's what they did. But there were a few who wouldn't. And they were blotted out from the registry of the synagogue. And therefore, they didn't have protection. But what Jesus was saying to them is, you're never blotted out from my registry. And it's my registry that matters. I want you to think about, for just a moment, the church today. The question I want to pose to you is, to which registry do you belong? The reason I point that question is, at the end of the day, we're living either for one city or the other. We're either going to be living for Babylon or we're going to be living for the new Jerusalem. We belong to one registry or the other. And the registry of Babylon is a system of works, whereas the new Jerusalem, it's by grace, isn't it? Babylon, remember, what did they say? They said, let us make a name for ourselves. And then God had to confuse it. Well, they're going to try to build that again. 
And so today as you go out into the church culture and people are saying, you know what, why do you study the Bible? That's not very relevant. After all, look at the practices that we have. These are a lot more exciting. They have yoga. They have Lectio Divina. They have all these experiences. You can walk a labyrinth and therefore feel closer to God. But all of those things are no different than what they did in Sardis. They're pagan practices that are associated with the building of Babylon. But you belong to the registry by faith to New Jerusalem. And so the point that I think you and I are to take away from this message to Sardis is we remain in the doctrines of Christ. No matter what the draw is from the outside world to say, you know what, the doctrines of Christ are passe. They're boring. They're not relevant. No, they are. And if you and I depart from them, it's evidence that you and I don't belong to the registry of the New Jerusalem. If you and I depart from the doctrines of Christ, it is evidence that you and I belong to the registry of Babylon, not the New Jerusalem. And that's something I think we should all consider as we say, you know what, let's persevere. Let us be those who are consumed and convinced that the doctrines of Christ are what save us. The words from his apostles. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much that by faith in your Son, you've given us an eternal hope that we're forever in the registry of the book of life. We thank you, Lord, that this promise is assured through the promise of you, of God who cannot lie. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you show us these things, that we would persevere in a dark culture. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be able to have the gospel upon our lips in joy and with love this week for those who are perishing, that we would present the gospel to them, that you would give us opportunity, that you would speak through us uh, your words and your truth. I pray for my brothers and sisters that all of the days and weeks ahead that perhaps may be difficult, they would remain true to your doctrines and forsake the culture that's in decay. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you and I, uh, that you would remind all of the believers here, Lord, that you would remind us all what registry we belong to, that uh, me and all the other saints here would be able to persevere until the day that you come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.